0: Well, do keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 59. I've always thought that one of the marks of the Bible's integrity and authenticity is the way in which it speaks to those who believe it most. In fact, its harshest words and its most cogent criticisms are for those who belong to the family of God. I imagine that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you you might think that what Christians do when they're in private away from the public gaze is to sit around and rather smugly reflect on how much better we are from everybody else. But you'd be wrong, you'd be very wrong. In fact, you probably noticed that prominent in our liturgy regularly as part of what we do when we're together is that we take time to pause and confess our sins to God and to seek the reassurance of God's pardon. Because it is to us the most amazing thing, the most surprising and unexpected thing, that we should be pardoned by our God. It never ceases to give us fuel for praise, pause for thought, reason to love, and cause for wonder that we unworthy people should have a relationship with God at all. And as Isaiah speaks in this chapter, we find him, as we do many of the prophets of Israel, as we find in the New Testament, the apostles of the Lord Jesus, acting in many ways as covenant attorneys. That is, they are the legal advocates of God and of God's will and work in the world. And they're prosecuting a case and it's the case of the Lord versus his church, Yahweh versus Israel. We find that here in this chapter because in a previous chapter, in chapter 58 verse three, we have really the background to what's going on at the beginning of chapter 59. There in chapter 58, we find a number of religious people. And by religious, I don't mean that negatively, but positively. That is believing people acting in a believing way. And we find them devoted and busy in their religious service of God. But we overhear them, perhaps not publicly or vocally, but in their minds and in their hearts. We hear them complaining to God that he didn't hear them, or if he heard them, that he wasn't paying any attention to them as they prayed. This is what they say in verse 3 of chapter 58. We have fasted. That was a religious exercise. We have fasted and you didn't see it. You didn't take note. We have humbled ourselves and you took no knowledge of it. Here were these people, and they were asking why it was that in spite of all their religious activity, in spite of all of their prayers in spite of all of their Christian service and their Christian work, why it was that they had no sense, that is, no feeling sense, of God's presence and power in their personal life or in the life of their church. They felt that God was absent, that he wasn't with them. And they were concluding either that God wasn't strong enough to make any difference... That God wasn't powerful enough to to intervene in their situation and change the circumstances of their life as a church or their life as an individual. Or, on the other hand, that he was not paying any attention to their prayers at all. And you can hear that complaint in the background as we come now to chapter 59. You can hear that complaint as... We have this instruction for us to look, to wise up, to look up, and to consider seriously. Behold, says the prophet, behold the Lord's hand. That is God's power to do. Is not shortened that it cannot save. There is nothing he is saying. There is nothing in God. In God's ability. In God's power. There is nothing that he cannot do. They were thinking that perhaps God wasn't strong enough to make a difference, that he wasn't powerful enough to make a change in their circumstances. They were wondering whether perhaps he wasn't hearing them, nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear. You see, it's always easier for us to blame God when circumstances aren't going in our favor than it is to take a long, hard look at ourselves in the mirror of Scripture. And the prophet here is saying to us, the word of God comes to us in verse 1 here. Look, he's saying, behold, God is uninhibited in his ability to save and to help. In fact, he's going to go further in this chapter. Later on in, in verse 20, he's going to tell us, That God has made a great promise to his people. His promise is, a redeemer will come. A redeemer will come. You you may be in a a period of delay. You may be in a period where things are are being held back for the moment. But you need to know that God has made a promise. And here he repeats the promise. A promise that he's made throughout this book. And now repeats again in verse 20. A redeemer. What do we mean by that word Redeemer. It's not one we use in our everyday life today, but in the ancient world, when someone had fallen into hard times, perhaps, or when someone had, because of financial reasons, had to place themselves into slavery for a period in order to earn enough money to buy their freedom and then to get themselves back on their feet, or if somebody had lost their house or their land, a near relative might come along and pay the debt or stand as a guarantor for a loan and act as a redeemer. A redeemer would buy their freedom, repurchase their lost land or possessions and return it to them. And this word redeemer is a favorite word of God. God likes us to call him our redeemer. The whole reason that Jesus came into the world was that he might become our near relative by taking on our flesh, that he might be our kinsman, our relative, redeemer. He became human so that he could do this very work for us. He comes along to act on our behalf. He comes along to act instead of us. He comes to rescue us. And so right at the very beginning of this chapter, we're reminded that there's nothing holding God back. There's nothing restraining God's activity. There is nothing in God by which he is unable to hear or unable to help. So what is the problem? And like a good covenant attorney, like a good advocate for God... He brings us to the word of God and he holds the mirror of the word of God up so that we can see ourselves in the mirror of the word of God. And what we see in this chapter is a description of God's own people. And we discover three things. We discover here are people who need a redeemer, who want a redeemer, and who find a redeemer. Let's look at that as we break it down this morning. First of all, God's people are people who need a Redeemer. I I, I need you to notice this, that as we go to verse 2 of this chapter, to remind you that God is speaking here to his own elect people. He is not talking to the world outside at this point. He's not addressing the foreign nations surrounding little Israel. In our case today, that is what we might call the world, the culture. Anything outside the church is the world. And we, we might expect God to be addressing the world, but that's not what he's doing here. He's addressing the church. And he addresses the church about a problem that we share in common with the world outside. But we discover that God is actually more concerned about this shared problem we have with the rest of the world, he's far more interested and concerned with this problem as it exists in the life of his church. So, what is the problem? Look at verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he does not hear. Now here is the prophet's explanation for what was going on in their experience. They felt God was inactive. They felt God was indifferent. They felt as if God was not intervening in the problems and circumstances. Things were going on and on and on and on and on. Problems were keeping re-emerging again and again and again. The enemies, the old enemies, seemed to rear their ugly heads over and over and over again. The people of God were frustrated. Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God act? And they felt he wasn't acting. They prayed. They worshipped. They served. They did what Christian people do, believing people do. And, and they, felt, they felt nothing. They felt no peace. They felt as if God was distant, that he was, that he was not near to them. And so God comes and he says something that you would expect he would say to the people outside this room. He says to them, your iniquities have made a separation. There is a barrier between God and you. Now we have no problem saying that to the world. We have no problem going out and saying to our friends, look... You know, your problem is this that there's God and there's you, and there's a sin problem that exists between God and you. Do you know most of the preaching in the Bible and most of the preaching in this church in its history has not been preaching directed against the world? You will not, you could have come to this church for a hundred and 50 years and listen to the preaching in this church and there's very seldom in that period of time that you would ever come to church and hear the minister preaching against the world. Why? Because he was preaching from the Bible and he was preaching to the church. Because God has something to say, first and foremost to his people, to the church. And that's who's being addressed here in verse 2. Do you notice that? It's between you and your God. You can't say that to the world. Yes, God is their God, but they don't recognize him. But we recognize him. They recognized him. Why is there dissatisfaction in the life of a believer? Well, the problem is that there's a relationship between them and God. So what the prophet is saying is this. It is not that God is inefficient. It is not that God is incapable. It is not that God is indifferent. The problem is God is holy. He is holy. That's always the problem. In all our Christian lives... And as the Apostle John put it, if we think we've got a relationship with God and we go on sinning, we are kidding ourselves on. Now you say, I thought it was that when we trusted in Jesus, our sins were forgiven. Yes, that's true. But when you trust in Jesus and your sins are forgiven, sin still creates a barrier between you and your God. Here's what the barrier means an implication. You can be forgiven your sins and not enjoy being forgiven your sins. You can have a relationship with God and not enjoy your relationship with God. There's no pleasure in it, there's no sense of fun in it anymore or enjoyment of it anymore. Because sin constitutes a barrier. That's what's being said here. It's between you and your God. This separation exists. And what we're being reminded of as we read these words, and by the way, the Apostle Paul, when he's describing the pagan world, uses language straight out of these first eight verses of this chapter to describe the pagan world in which we and they lived. And what Isaiah is saying and what Paul is saying is this. The sin that you see in the world is in the church because it is in our hearts. It is in our hearts. It is still there in our hearts. Which is why good and godly people can do bad things. Sin is embedded in our nature. The Puritans used to talk about the remainders of sin that are stuck there in my sinful nature. We sang about that earlier on. We sang uh, in, in that hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, uh, that uh, you know, what, what, what am I struggling with when I come to the cross? Well, it's my own unworthiness. Well, actually, the author of the hymn wrote, my own worthlessness, but apparently we don't like to call ourselves worthless anymore, so we rewrite it. Unworthiness. But actually... Actually, if I really understand my sinful nature, I understand that I am worthless, that I have nothing in the presence of a holy God. I think we rewrote it because there are some sensitive souls who take that to the extreme and apply that to their whole humanity, that they're worthless. They've been brought up in a situation, they carry... The burden and pain of having been treated as if they are worthless in human terms by other human beings. And we've changed it for your sensitive conscience. But there are few of you and there are more of us who need our consciences sensitized to the holiness of God and the reality of sin. Now he describes in verse 3 and following the movement of sin... And he starts on the outside. He starts out with a movement from, uh, he's describing, by the way, the whole body politic of the church. And he shows how the, there is a movement, a progression in sin from the hands to the fingers to the lips and tongue to the thoughts of the mind, the muttered wickedness of the heart. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Well, you sit there and you say, well, I haven't killed anybody. That's good. I hope that you're sitting there (laughs) saying, I haven't killed anybody. But you see, what what Isaiah is doing is exactly what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is using, by the way, much of Isaiah in the Sermon on the Mount and unpacking it and explaining it. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon? He takes murder and he traces it to its source in the heart. That's what Isaiah does here. This muttering, this muttering. is is actually what we say under our breath that reveals what is in our mind and in our heart nobody hears this but it starts with wickedness there and what we say or what we think reveals itself in lies that we say about other people which leads to the assassination of their character or their reputation and it destroys them it bloodies them it is a form of murder. And that's the description that he paints here. This is a progression from the heart to the impact of their lives. He goes on to say this, verse 4. That's why there's a, there's a misuse of the legal process. Their religious activity is empty of reality. No one enters suit Justly, no one goes to law. Honestly, they rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. They give birth to iniquity. And then he goes on to give an illustration. This heart problem is productive in some ways. He likens it to a, to a viper's, to an adder's egg. They hatch agar, adders. That's hard to say. Adders' egg. <laughs> Adders, eggs. <clears throat> I had too much coffee this morning. <clears throat> the, the point being, of course, here that, 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 that sin in the heart is productive. It has an effect, okay? And as he describes the effect, the effect of this kills. Sin kills. You think of the the viper or the adder's egg there. And he says, whether, you, whether you're... Whether you, uh, eat the egg or whether you stand on it and the, the viper is, uh, is unleashed you're dead you eat the egg you're dead the poison is in the egg if you release the viper the viper will bite you and you're dead that's the point sin the sin in our heart leads to death it kills people it kills you it kills other people it has a negative Contagious effect. Or look at the other image that he uses. They weave a spider's web. Here are people in the world, people in the church. Here are Here is the effect of sin. What sin does is it wants us to feel comfortable and secure. And so we weave something that we can cover ourselves with in the cold and shield ourselves from problems with. And he says it's no better than a spider's web. So you go and try and cover yourself with a spider's web. You go, you touch it, what happens? It, it disappears. It just demolishes it. It will not cover you. It will not yield you any comfort in a windy night. The wind will destroy it in other words sin leads to contagion and frustration that's the effect of sin and what he's saying look at verse 7 and 8 this comes from the heart their feet run to do evil they're swift to shed innocent blood their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity desolation and destruction on their highways and so on there's no peace they don't know any peace at all so here's the issue here's the problem the problem is that that sin is, is, a, is, a, is a vital dynamic reality in the hearts and minds of people in the world and in the church. That's what he's talking about. He's talking to Christian people, believing people here. And he's saying the reason you have no peace, verse 8, the, peace you, the reason why you have, you have no sense of the presence of God in your life is because of the reality of sin. Let me, let me put it like this. There's a lesson to be learned here uh, that answers two common questions. Why is it? Why is it that bad people can do good things? I'm thinking of people in the world. By bad people, I don't mean that they're desperately bad, but, but they might not be believed. Well, for, for Christians, that's a bad thing if you don't believe. But why is it someone who doesn't believe can do good things? Why is it that someone who is a a serial killer, I know this from watching TV, uh, a serial killer can look after his mother or his family or his dog? How can bad people do good things? The second question is how can good people do bad things? And these two questions are resolved by two doctrines that the Bible gives us. The verse is a doctrine of common grace, not saving grace, but common grace. It's the work of God in restraining evil in the world. See, evil is a, is a. You, you, if you read verses 1 to 8 there, and you think, do I really believe that that is what sin looks like? That sin is such an active, powerful force and does all this damage and kills people and kills me. Do I really believe that? If that's what sin is like, why is it that we're not seeing it manifested all the time in the world? What is holding it back? Occasionally you see sin, if you like, unrestrained. What ISIS is doing chopping people's heads off multiple rapes and and injuring children and, and brutalizing women and so on you look there and you say well there's what happens when the restraints are taken off you look at one of the most prominent countries of Europe half a century ago and in one of the most civilized countries of Europe the restraints are taken off and six million Jews are killed In other words, all the time we are seeing the restraining grace of God keeping people back from being as bad as potentially they might be. You need to read 1 to 8 over and over again and see the potential of sin. This is the way it is. And God is restraining that. In us and in people all around us in society. Thank him for it every day for the restraining grace of God. And when you see some atrocity committed, some terrible crime committed, what you're seeing is restraint taken off to remind you of what is in your heart, potentially. That's what sin does. But there's another doctrine. It's the doctrine of radical depravity. And it says this, basically... That in the heart of the believer is the seed of every known sin. So therefore, when a believer sins, don't be surprised about it. Don't explain it away or cover it up. But don't be surprised about it. It's the way it is. Luther had an expression in Latin, famous expression. Simul justus et peccator. At one and the same time justified and sinful. Now when you read that, I wonder what your reaction to this passage is. What do you think about this passage? Let me read to you Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He puts it like this. His words. Let me put it plainly. If you do not accept this description of yourself apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ then there is no need to argue about it. You are just not a Christian. If you resent all this, then you are not a Christian. You are not yet convinced and convicted of sin, and you are not a believer in Christ, though you may have thought you were. If you in any way object to this, You are automatically putting yourself outside the kingdom of God and the Christian faith. This description of man in sin is the simple, horrible truth. This is what sin has brought us to. It's a sobering thought. Everybody in this room, everybody in this world needs a redeemer. On the sin issue, we stand in solidarity with the entire human race. And we recognize and acknowledge that we have fallen short of the glory of God and that there is none righteous, no, not one. And that the way of the ungodly will perish. We need a Redeemer. But here's the second thing. From verse 9. God's people. Here's the difference. God's people are people who want a redeemer. Look at what they do, verses 9 to 11. Because here what we find is that the first step to restoring our relationship with God is to admit our corporate sin. Now let let me take a moment to explain something here. I said earlier that we don't spend our time lecturing the world about its sin. We spend our time preaching the gospel to the world and challenging ourselves because of sin. The Apostle Paul has a great passage that that I need to draw to your attention in which he is writing about church discipline. And you know sometimes when church discipline is required in any church, there are always people who say, well, you know, we shouldn't be judging, judge not, you be not judged, taken out of context, of course, and so on. But listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's writing to the Corinthians. They had a problem that they were addressing of sin in the congregation and so on. And Paul had written to them telling them how they should treat the sinner. They had to put him out of the church. They had to treat him like an unbeliever until he was restored and repented. Listen to what he writes. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate... With sexually immoral people. That was a particular problem, by the way. That's not just a general thing, but that was the problem at Corinth. But listen to his next words. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy. Or swindlers. Or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Now you see the distinction he's making. There's what you do in the church and there's what you do in the world. He's saying in the church, if one of your own number commits a serious public sin, you dissociate yourself from them. But you don't dissociate yourself from the people you work with, your colleagues at work. You don't do that. I'll go on. I'll read on. Listen. Look what he says next. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. We are to purge the evil person from among you. Now he's making a very clear Do you notice and correspondence here? He's saying this: that men and women in your relationship with the people that you work with, people who are your colleagues, the people in your friendships, with folks who don't believe in the Lord Jesus. In that context, you don't make a difference. Doesn't matter what they are. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they've done. You don't critique them or criticize them. That is not your job. There's a day of judgment coming and God will judge the unbeliever. Get that? He's the judge. Jesus sets us the example. He did not come into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't what he came in to do. But to have a gospel for the world to believe. So what we say to the world is, let me just tell you where you're wrong here. We say to the world, Christ is alive. Christ died and rose again. You need Christ. But when it comes to the church, judgment has already begun. That's what the whole book of Revelation is all about. Jesus is talking to his church. He is ruling his church, judging his church, purifying his church. The judgment begins in the house of God. And we are to judge ourselves in our own hearts. We'll do that in a moment as we gather around the Lord's table. And where things are necessary, we judge as a corporate body in order to preserve the purity of the church. So you need to be able to distinguish. So if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know that I'm talking mostly here this morning to people who are Christian people, and I'm saying we need to take sin seriously. Because God is a holy God. And we are his people. And he is determined to make us holy. Now you can see the kind of people then who are genuine believers. He, uh, the prophet begins... To quote them in verse 9 and in verse 9 to 11, you can hear that they're taking this very seriously. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, behold darkness. For brightness, we walk in gloom. This is the reality, these people are saying. We're constantly frustrated as we we know we want to be living in the light and walking in the light, but we find sin in us. What, What... what Isaiah says here, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We, we stumble at noon like the twilight. Well, among those with full vigor, we're like dead men. We, we look at ourselves, we look at what we're like, and we growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. <laughs> We hope to do the right thing, but we don't. We want to be released from our own captivity to our own sinful nature, but but that release has not come yet. We're being saved, but we're not finally saved. We're being released from sin, but we're not finally released from sin. Sin is a reality. It's still there in my heart. It's still there as I feel the exposure of my sin in my heart. And do you see how this transition takes place? That's how they feel, verses 9 to 11. And now they start speaking to God. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquity. Here they're talking the way David talked when he confessed his sin to God. In fact, they use the same three words David used. My sin, that is a specific thing I've done wrong my iniquity, that is the basic fundamental issue in my heart, the sin problem, and my transgression or my rebellion, that is I'm in rebellion against God. Here they're saying these very things. Verse 13, transgressing, denying the Lord, turning back from following God, speaking oppression, revolt, conceiving, and uttering from the heart lying words. He's probing down to the very depth of their heart, and their experience. Now you see how Jesus picks this up. He picks this up in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about those who are poor in spirit. Why are they poor in spirit? It's because they know they've got nothing. They've got nothing to bargain with, nothing to plead when it comes to a relationship with God. Why have they nothing to bargain with? Well, he goes on to say, because they mourn over sin. They're the mourners. They're grieving. And if you want to know what mourning over sin looks like, you read verses 9 to 11. And they confess their sin to God. Verses 10, 12, 13. They admit it. They recognize it. Now, I, I, I want you to know that, that if you take the Sermon on the Mount, this is the most liberating thing. You say, this is really heavy, and this, I don't really like thinking about all this sin stuff. But it's the most liberating thing, that you will ever find in your life. You know there are times in life that you may have had this experience. I certainly had this experience, where people are something against you. And you know, sometimes you do something, and people are something against you because of what you've done. But then there are those times in life where people have things against you, and you know perfectly well they've got it wrong. You know they're telling lies. They're they're making it up. They're Got the wrong end of the story, you know, and and so on and so forth. And and you feel misunderstood, you feel, feel misrepresented. And you know, when you feel like that, what do you want to do? You want to stand up and tell your story. You want to put them right. But you see, if you have really gotten to the place where these people have gotten to, here in chapter 59, to see yourself in the presence of a holy God as a sinner, then this is how you reason. Those people who are attacking me are wrong. There, 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 and there. But what they don't know, I know. What they don't know is what I am in the sight of God. And I am a sinner in the sight of God. And what that leads to is what the Bible calls meekness. And meekness is Being willing to let other people think of you what you know before God that you are. They may think of you for the wrong reasons, but you know that before God, you're an even bigger sinner than they could ever imagine. That's why Jesus follows the poor in spirit and the mourning with meekness. And meekness is such a liberating thing. I don 't have to pretend. I don 't have to put on an image. I don 't have to try and look particularly spiritual. I'm not sure I could do that anyway. But yeah, I 've tried and I can't, so it 's too late now. You, but you don 't have to pretend that 's the whole point. You don 't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend. That's why when we come together Sunday by Sunday, I'm so glad we begin by admitting what we are. Then we've got that out the road and we can get on with the rest of it. Isn't that wonderful? It's the liberating power of God's pardon. So here's the movement. We belong to the rest of humanity in sin. What makes us different is that we acknowledge that. We, we grieve, we mourn over it, and we confess our sin. But here's the third thing. The people, God's people, have a redeemer. They have a redeemer. Verses 14 15 is a summary statement. The end of verse 15, we see the Lord saw it. He saw that there was nobody, no mediator, no one to get in between God and man in sin. The barrier Nobody to get in the place in between. God offended God and offending man. So what did he do about it? Look at verse 16. His own arm brought salvation. We know what his own arm is. It's a person. Chapter 53. It's the Messiah servant, Jesus. His own arm, he does it himself. He brings salvation. He comes himself to get involved, verse 17. He puts on his body armor of righteousness. He puts on his helmet of salvation. He comes to save and rescue his people. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about God the warrior coming on our behalf, coming to make war, not against us, but against sin. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, do you remember the people welcomed him and they said more than they knew. They cried out, Hosanna, which means save us, rescue us. That is precisely why he had come. He had come to save them, to rescue them. And here is God himself arming up in order to come into the world in order that he might be our Redeemer. This morning, it is the greatest joy for those who see sin as it is, who see sin in themselves. And only a believer does that. You can scream to the world for all your worth about what's wrong with the world. But it takes the grace of God in opening our eyes and the word of God in our ears before we see sin as God sees it. And the longer you go on in your Christian life, when you get to be really, really old like me you will know then that you are an even greater sinner than you could ever have imagined. If I would known it when I was a boy I think I would have been overwhelmed. So you learn it gradually. And the more you learn of yourself the more you rejoice in the grace of God in the gospel we have a redeemer Father thank you that you have acted for us in Christ and the tokens of your redemption you are about to place into our hands and our mouths just as you have placed your promise in our ears give us the faith to believe and therefore the eyes to see Christ crucified for us We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.